Welcome to The Scenic Route, the expanded broadcast of the American countryside. Today's guest is Eugene Boone, who today lives in Abilene, Texas. In the fall of 1963, he was a 24-year-old deputy sheriff in Dallas. On November 22nd of that year, he found himself just yards from President Kennedy when Kennedy was shot. Here's American Countryside host Andrew McRae with Eugene Boone. Let's go roll back the clock uh, 50 years. Maybe you kind of want to tell people what you're doing uh, during 1963 as we head into the fall, uh, what you're doing that early that year. Uh, I was a, I was a deputy sheriff in Dallas at the time, and um, my district was, I really worked downtown. I had worked on radio patrol for a year, and then, uh, but my district was downtown. I was 24-year-old deputy sheriff. I was the youngest deputy sheriff Bill Decker had ever, had ever hired. <laughs> During that, that year, mostly just routine stuff as a deputy heading into the fall? Just routine stuff, um, you know, everyday, everyday sort of routine stuff. And uh, at the time when President Kennedy came to, uh, to town, the sheriff's office really didn't have any major, uh, any major commitments to the security of the president. And a group of us uh, during the parade was just standing in front of the sheriff's office watching the parade. Uh, well, I was going to ask how far, how much advance notice did you have he was coming, and then was there any special duties for you that day? There were no special duties, and of course, it had been publicized in the newspaper that uh, that he was going to be here and have a meal out at the trademark, and uh, a, a lot of dignitaries would be out there with uh, with that, and so. In the morning, I went to my, through my normal routine that I would go through uh, uh, in the downtown district, and and uh, at noon I was back at the sheriff's office, and the, the parade came by the courthouse right at noon. All right, all right. Well, you had mentioned to me before we started the interview here. You may want to describe to people that either too young to remember or forgotten kind of the climate of why he's even coming to to Dallas. Uh, I think I believe President Kennedy uh, was preparing for the 1964 presidential campaign, even though he had not formally announced that he was a candidate for 1964. The 1960 presidential race had left the Texas Democratic Party in a shambles. Uh, the race between uh, Senator Lyndon Johnson and Senator, at that time, Senator John Kennedy for the Democratic nominations had divided families in the state of Texas. So consequently, uh, President Kennedy was uh, astute enough to know that he couldn't win the 1964 uh, campaign without Texas and its 24 uh, electoral votes. And the Democratic Party in the state was in such shambles, uh, divided between the liberals led by Senator Ralph Yarborough and the conservatives and moderates led by Governor John Connolly. So that was kind of the the political emphasis that he had, and he planned a whirlwind trip then with stops in Houston and uh, Fort Worth and Dallas. All right. You said then at noon that day you were at the courthouse? Is that where you were at? Yes, our office is at, was at that time was at 505 Main Street, which was on the corner of Maine and, uh, and Houston. The parade came down Main Street, made a right turn on Houston Street, one block to Elm Street, made a left on Elm Street, which the, which was the only way to get access to Stemmons Freedway and heading out to the trademark. You're standing there just watching the parade just like everybody else. We were standing there just watching the parade, and uh, by the time the, the we heard the shots and by the time the third shot was uh, 
was fired. Uh, if you've been there, there's a cement abutment across on the west side of uh, Houston Street. By the time the third shot was fired, I was in the, the middle or the west side of uh, Houston Street. And as I came around the, the cement abutment there, I looked to my right and there were two people on the ground. And uh, the first thing that just came through my mind, I said, there's two dead ones right there. I glanced up and the presidential car was just going under the triple underpass. Uh, so give people an idea then, how far away were you? You were relatively close. Uh, yeah, about 25 yards wow. uh, from uh, from the cement abutment there to where I was standing there at the corner of, uh, of Maine and Houston. But not in view of what was happening. Just That's right. That's shot. correct. Not in view of that. But there was no mistaking that there were that the shots were fired. And uh, as I mentioned a while ago, there were three shots that were fired. And there was a, a, a noticeable space between the first and second shot, and the third, the second and third shot came rather quickly. Yeah, yeah. So when you t turned the corner there and you were out in the street, the two that you saw that were on the ground, was that they were just people getting out of the way? Who, what Pe people that were getting out of the way. As I came around the corner there and, and uh, approached them, they began to get up. And uh, I ran across uh, the, that grassy area between Main and, and Elm Street, across Elm Street, up what's been referred to as the Grassy Knoll. A motorcycle officer was in front of me. I helped him over the where the bridge and the fence came together back there, and he pulled me over. He went uh, to the south toward the post office annex, and I went to the north out into the railroad freight yards. All right. Then what was telling you to go to that area? Because, of course, over time people have always said that that was an area they thought shots had come from. Were you just going off of him, or what led you to go that direction? We just were asking people where the shots came from, and they were saying they didn't know. The sound vibrates around, and those, uh, there's so much cement and brick down there that the sound vibrates around. And we just felt like that it had to be somewhere other than one of the buildings. But as uh, as uh, so the search narrowed down, uh, as I said, I went out in the freight yard. There was uh, somebody working in one of the Pullman cars back there at the time. Uh, I was on a landing between two cars. Uh, he came down the side of the the, the 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 car where he had been working, and when he did, well, I just had my I carried a forty-five automatic uh, as my as my weapon. Uh, he came abreast of the landing, and he was looking right down the barrel of my forty-five automatic, and uh, we both were scared. <laughs> and it didn't take long to determine that he was a, a railroad employee working on one of the cars back there. Uh, I also talked to a man by the name of Bauer who was in the control tower in there and asking him if he had seen anything or heard anything or seen anything in the area, any like anybody running or anything like that. And he referred, no, he didn't. I understand now that he's changed his mind over the years and he did see something, but the, that's neither here nor there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the search then kind of centered on the school book depository. Um, I went back, talked with a man by the name of uh, W.H. Betzner, 
and um, uh, he had taken some pictures. He and his wife had taken some pictures just before or about the time the shots were fired. I took him and his camera over to the sheriff's office, had their camera confiscated that, had their film developed. Uh, I understand they didn't have anything on that, but then I returned to the front of the school book depository. And also uh, uh, I searched out the flower bed area there and the area on down the fence. Um, <clears throat> I just have problems with the people that uh, want to theorize that there were other shots were fired from the grassy knoll area. I, I didn't find any evidence of that as uh, this was, uh, this was, uh, less than 30 minutes or so after the shots were fired. I didn't find any evidence of that. As a matter of fact, the flower beds had been turned over and you know how, ground crusts overnight uh, and in my judgment if somebody had a fired from where the hedge area was they would have had to be standing in the flower bed and the flower beds were undisturbed and I didn't notice any kind of um, powder burns or anything like that on the foliage that uh, that I looked through and the search eventually settled on the school book depository the building was vacated and battery-powered flashlights at that time they had large battery-powered flashlights some of which were on the the steps of the school book depository i took one and went to the sixth floor with some other officers just we were searching the building i just happened to be one of the officers that went to the sixth floor we lined up and and the sixth floor was a real mess i mean uh, books were everywhere and i don't know if you've seen any of the the uh exhibits from the Warren Commission or not, but uh, you could hardly walk across the, you couldn't walk across the floor in a straight line. (laughs) Uh, There were books everywhere. And we lined up against the east wall and proceeded uh, west across the building, looking for anything that really didn't belong there. Officer Luke Mooney was a deputy sheriff also. He came to the sixth floor. He found what's been referred to as the sniper's nest. Uh, of course, all of us had to go over and take a look at that when he found the shells where the fells were on the floor and the partially eaten chicken meal. And then we continued our search across the across the sixth floor. As I approached the west wall in the in the northwest corner of the building where the stairwell was, one row of books uh, across from the stairwell. Uh, there was a crevice between that row of books and the next row of books. The top row of books had been pushed across the top so as to conceal the crevice, and the rifle was in the crevice between the two rows of books. It looked like somebody could run across the the sixth floor, diagonally across the floor, and as they hit the staircase could shove that rifle in the crevice to conceal it so nobody would see nobody would see that and then hit the stairwell to go down as a matter of fact i understand uh, there was an officer his name may have been baker who was in the stairwell a motorcycle officer and at that time they were looking for somebody that didn't belong there he and mr truly who was the supervisor of the school book depository were going up the stairwell. Lee Oswald was coming down the stairwell, uh, and uh, this officer stopped him, and Mr. Truly said, he works here. 
And like I said, they were looking for somebody that didn't belong there at the time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that was my involvement. Uh, I protected the scene. I looked at my watch at the time I saw the rifle, and it was 122. So about how much time had elapsed then? Well, uh, as the as the motorcade came came down, uh, the parade came down and made the right turn on uh, Houston Street. Uh, Secret Service agent Rufus Youngblood looked on the clock on the top of the school book depository at time. There was a great big billboard Hertz rent a car clock on the top, and he noticed that it was 12:30 p.m. So from shortly after that, a minute or two after that, they made the turn on uh, left turn on Elm Street, and then shortly after that, the shots were fired. So between 12:30 and 1:22. Uh, and if my memory serves me right, and I would just have to go back and look at some of the other data that's out there, that is going to be pretty close to when uh, Oswald was captured over in the Texas Theater. I don't remember just exactly what that time frame is, but pretty close from the time the shots were fired till the time that he was taken into custody with something like an hour or maybe a little over an hour. So it all kind of came together rather quickly. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, did you have any idea what was going on? Did you have radios or anything that were telling you that they'd captured him or that, uh, you know, another policeman had been killed or, you know, and all this was going on? At the time, we didn't. Uh, the the officers that were in the area, principally the, the, the patrol officers that were with the parade, and the officers, the sheriff's deputies that were watching the parades just acted on their own initiative. It wasn't any kind of an organized search that officers in charge said, go here or go there. All of the officers seemed to be working on their own initiative, trying to determine what had happened and uh, trying to to apprehend anything that did, anybody that didn't normally have to be there. Yeah, yeah. After you found the the weapon, what happened then? Did uh, you just secure the scene then for a while? I just secured the scene and called for a photographer. Uh, Lieutenant J.C. Day with the Dallas Police Department came and photographed the area, and uh, Captain Will Fritz was with him, and uh, Lieutenant Day, if my recollection, removed the gun from the crevice and uh, the pictures that normally you've seen in the paper with somebody holding the rifle up, that was Captain Will Fritz, who was a captain with the Homicide Division with the Dallas Police Department, uh, yeah. was doing that. What happened then after that? Because certainly you were a very big part of, you know, the folks that were coming through there, but in the days that followed then, uh, was it mostly then out of your hands? Did, or what happened after that? Uh, it's, uh, it's one of those... Uh, Lifetime events, I think, that, that happened. Uh, it, it was instant chaos, instant turmoil. You have the world press that's there, and everybody wants to talk to everybody and get a statement of some kind from anybody that knew anything, that saw anything, that did anything. Um, as for myself, I referred everybody to my sheriff. Uh, let him make any any commitments that uh, he wanted to. Uh, Bill Decker was my sheriff. Um, he had a policy that if anything significant happened during a term of uh, duty, that uh, he wanted to know about it. So we had what we call Decker letters. Uh, we needed to write a short. Uh, uh, paragraph on what had happened and who was involved and give it to him so he didn't want to be 
uh, called and not have any information about any kind of a significant event that had happened during your term of duty. So eventually uh, I went back to the sheriff's office and sat down and wrote my Decker letter for him. And then it was just turmoil and chaos in the courthouse. Uh, uh, the sheriff chased uh, uh, half a dozen reporters out of the entryway to the jail because he couldn't even get back in the jail. They were wanting to poke their cameras through the bars, uh, which was just the jail office. The only thing that was there was the turnkey, was the push buttons. <laughs> Uh, and it was just it was just really chaos, and uh, uh, that was on Friday, and then Saturday uh, I I went down to the sheriff's office, and we didn't really do much of anything. It was just mainly hanging around the office uh, and that sort of thing, following up on anything that uh, anybody needed. I didn't necessarily do anything particularly. Uh, prior to my time with the sheriff's office. I was employed by the Dallas Times Herald, which was a, yeah. which was a newspaper that's not in existence anymore. Um, and uh, my job, my last job with the Dallas Times Herald was uh, with the uh, with the advertising department, and I handled all the theater and nightclub advertising in Dallas County. And Jack Ruby was one of my clients. And I knew Jack and had known him for several for several years. Charmaine knew him. A lot of times I would be waiting for him to bring his ads in, and he was what we called a cash-with-copy advertiser. Uh, I was waiting for him in the evening to bring his ad in for the next day. Um, Charmaine would be waiting to take me home because I was waiting for him. So she knew what he looked like also. On Sunday morning... Um, the sheriff and myself and three or four other deputies were on Houston Street behind the entry to the jail office, the secured entry to the jail office. Um, the, one of the, somebody came running out the driveway, said, there's a fight at City Hall. We started back inside. Before we could get inside, somebody else had come out and said, there's a shooting at City Hall. As I came in the sheriff's office, uh, I came around the switchboard. We had a huge switchboard uh, at the time and the operator said you have a phone call I went over to the telephone and it was Charmaine she said I was watching this on TV and it looked like Jack Ruby shot Oswald I said no it couldn't be Jack so I told the sheriff I said Charmaine called said uh, it looked like Jack Ruby shot Oswald he said the same thing no it couldn't be Jack but it was and uh, and so uh, we just had that link that day, and then it was just turbulent that day because of the the assassination of uh, of uh, Oswald that day. But uh, I also knew J.D. Tippett. Uh, I didn't know him well, but I, at that time he'd been a 10- or 11-year veteran of the Dallas Police Department. Uh, I knew him to be very conscientious, and... Uh, I believe that when the All Points Bulletin went out uh, that he was not at the school book depository, that he was missing from there, they gave a brief description of what he looked like. And I believe that J.D. saw somebody that looked like the description that came over the police radio. I don't believe he in any way thought in his wildest imagination that that was the assassin of President Kennedy. And what causes me to believe that is that uh, the snap on his holster on his gun was not even undone when he was killed. 
Uh, I, I believe he just answered the, he saw him, it was a general description, he got out to investigate. And most of the time when you stop somebody or start to talk to somebody about that and you're in law enforcement, they think you're stopping them for the worst thing that they have done. And so that's when Oswald shot him in front of his patrol car. You mentioned Jack Ruby. What kind of gentleman was he? You got to deal with him quite a bit. Jack was uh, an unusual sort of person. Uh, uh, I, I, I know that he had um, uh, underworld, in, uh, you know, contacts, and I, and I know that people over the years have tried to say that he was influenced by the mafia and so on and so forth to do that. I don't believe that. Uh, the way I knew Jack, uh, there were two other nightclub burlesque houses, Abe's Colony Club, which was across the driveway. There was uh, the, the Carousel Club, and then there was a garage, and this is on Commerce Street. And then there was the Abe's Colony Club. And then behind on uh, Jackson Street, there was the Theater Lounge. Well, the Theater Lounge were owned by Abe and Barney Weinstein. And Jack always kind of had a complex that Abe and Barney were trying to run him out of business. There's no denying that he was a, a Kennedy uh, supporter. But I believe Jack thought that he could that he could shoot Oswald, be the man that shot the man, you know, Dakota the West, and that no jury would ever convict him, and he could go back and be the main attraction at his carousel club. Um, I knew um, uh, his his personal lawyer at that time was a, or one of his personal lawyers was a man by the name of Stanley Kaufman and Stanley and I talked about that on any number of occasions and he agreed with me <laughs> on that uh, on that conclusion so um, that was just part of uh, part of that time yeah well it sounds like he was a interesting and, and somewhat I, I, you might not say volatile but he was an interesting character then sure. he was an interesting character he uh the way I would describe Jack is, you know people that could never be a fireman, but they hang around the firehouse? That's the kind of person Jack was. I, Jack liked police officers. On any number of occasions, uh, he I, I've heard and seen him when he would go to the police department or the sheriff's office and if people were working on a case that they hadn't been able to get anything to eat uh, for a normal break, he'd be willing to go at you know at midnight to go someplace and get them a sandwich and bring it back. He just he loved police officers, but he could never be one. <laughs> you mentioned Officer Tippett. How how quickly did they surmise that this was the man they were looking for? Because you mentioned when you got to the school book depository, you know they'd already seen him coming downstairs. They'd already said that he worked there. So how quick did that uh, happen? Well. I think that it all happened within a time frame of about an hour and a half because he was taken into custody over in Oak Cliff at the Texas Theater and the assassination of uh, our Tippett was shot over in Oak Cliff, not far from the Texas Theater. So all of this happened in the course of a short period of time. I'm interested, you, you've mentioned the shots and what you heard and so forth. You know, now we're 50 years later your thoughts on everything is your have your thoughts changed over time because i mean it's still it's researched and researched and researched i think it's about research to death <laughs> but uh, uh 
I believe that the Warren Commission was correct in its in its conclusions that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone in the assassination. If there was a conspiracy, in my judgment, if there was a conspiracy, the conspiracy was to get Oswald in the right place at the right time to accomplish the assassination. It doesn't really make sense to me that somebody that's been in the service, that uh, disavowed uh, their allegiance to America, that went to Russia, that had been in Mexico, had been in Cuba, had been in uh, New Orleans recently, uh, passing out uh, um, uh, material there. It doesn't make sense that he's working as a in a school book depository moving cases of books around. Yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't really have anything other than that to base my conclusions on, but it just doesn't seem to make sense to me that... Uh, that it happened that way and if if there was a conspiracy i believe it was to get him in the right place at the right time i believe uh, a lot of people have made a lot of money off of uh, books and films that have been written and made about uh, the kennedy assassination uh, in my judgment most of them if not all of them belong in the fiction section of your local library yeah yeah what did you do? How long were you a deputy then after that? Uh, for 10 years. I was a deputy from 62 to 72. And after that, I, I really figured, uh, my wife and I talked about it. We'd been interested in children. We had uh, been foster parents. And uh, uh, I didn't see myself really making a difference in people's lives, uh, putting people in jail. What I needed to do was to get them before they had to go to jail. And consequently, we spent uh, the next, uh, I'm, I'm a high school dropout, by the way, and we went uh, to work for a children's home working with uh, troubled children. And after we were there four years, uh, as a family, we came together with a wife and three children, and we sat down and decided that I would go to school. And we came, I came back here to Abilene and enrolled in Abilene Christian University as a freshman uh, under the old person clause in the catalog at 37 years old. And uh, I did have my GED and they allowed me in on scholastic probation for a year. <laughs> the, for the first semester, if I could make the grade, they would let me stay. And uh, during that time, I, I was appointed and served as chief probation officer of Jones and Shackleford County, which are two counties just north of Abilene, and commuted back and forth to, to school. I graduated with a degree in psychology, and then because of classwork I've done and what have you, I currently hold a master's uh, level license in social work. Uh, and have over the years served as uh, president and CEO of uh, children's homes uh, and their foundations trying to make a difference in chunk in kids' lives. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you really devoted the rest of your life to that cause. Yeah. Yes, yes, that's true. And we retired uh, in 05 and then uh, began uh, our sojourn as full-time RVers uh, and uh, enjoyed that. We wouldn't trade the time that we've done that for, for anything with the people that we've met and the, the friendships that we've made over the years. Sure, sure. 
other things you would like to add? Because this was, a, I mean, your whole life, you've done a lot, a lot of things, and I hate to just focus in on one thing because it makes us, it, because then it, it does, does not do justice to the rest of what you've done, which is a lot. But are there other things you'd like to work in before I wind up? If not, that's fine. But I always like to ask that if there are pieces of the story or if that event or anything else. No, we just I just feel strongly uh, about uh, uh, working with young people. Uh, uh, young people are our future. We have three children and six grandchildren, and uh, Charmaine has pictures if you'd like to see those, <laughs> and one great-grandson. Uh, and uh, they're our future. And uh, if, if we're not doing something to structure and to strengthen families, um, I think uh, we've got a hard road to hoe in the future uh, in the United States. Thanks for listening to this edition of The Scenic Group. Remember, you can catch all of our daily broadcasts and much more at AmericanCountryside.com.